Father, we confess again this morning our need of you. And so ask that you would open our blind eyes to see afresh the glory of Christ as we look at these verses together. Soften our hard hearts and transform us, we pray. In his precious name, amen. We've, um, we've said before that the Bible is a book that is refreshingly honest about the gritty reality of the world, about the reality of, of suffering, about the reality of real life. And so it's sometimes said, if you take your Bible and you pinch Genesis 1 and 2 in your hands there, at the start and then Revelation 21, 22 at the end, then what you have in the middle pretty much is a story of suffering. On every single page, the narrative of sorrow. And, and we are in the middle of the story. That is where we are. And we will be until, as, as Matt was reminding the children, until the day of Christ, when, when Jesus comes back, when it's finished, when he's done, when the jigsaw is put together finally and perfectly, when we are perfectly reflecting Christ in how we live, not just through our union with him as we trust him, but actually in these bodies. And the world is made new again. But for now, we are in the middle of the story. But just to take a a step back and think more broadly, I think the Bible speaks of three different types of suffering for the Christian. The first type is simply living for Christ in a broken world. It's It's a world where people get ill and where we have colds and where there's cancer. It's a world of selfishness, of me first, of angry words and more angry words in return. It's a world of earthquakes and disease and famine. It's the mess of daily life. It's Monday morning. And so when Paul puts it, as he writes to the Romans, he says, all of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So there's a first type of suffering, which is simply living in a broken world. It's suffering for all. It's the reality of our experience. But I think it's more than that, because secondly, it seems there's a particular suffering for the people of God. Living for and representing him to a world that has rejected him and who hates him. As we're those who follow in Christ's footsteps, then in one sense, what do we expect? How do they treat him? Well, how are they going to treat us? But then thirdly, there's, I think, a type of suffering primarily and particularly for those involved in Christian ministry of some kind, in, in active ministry, which in a sense is all of us, but perhaps particularly those who are set aside. And it's, it's to help us, people like me, be better able to help others. So have a listen again to Paul from 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, in God's loving kindness, the true shepherd lovingly makes his own shepherds better able to look after his sheep. 
more useful, more able, because we've been shown grace. We've received grace, and so we can give grace to others, show compassion to others. Firsthand, we know what it's like. But here's the thing. Three different types of suffering, and whatever the complexity, whatever situation, whether it's a mix of one, two, and three, or all of them, I think there are always only two responses. That is it. There are two responses. How how do you respond to suffering in your life, whatever that looks like, whatever that is? I think suffering either makes us turn from God or, or to God. And that's it. Think of it as the small, naughty child standing before parents who are training and disciplining them, wanting the best for them, but disciplining nonetheless. We can either turn from him, we turn away with backs to him as we're hardened, and we think, well, God can't love me, or he's not even there, because why would he put me through this? Why would he make me experience this? What is he doing? Or we turn to him. Perhaps it's the daily reality of turning to him and saying, I don't know why, but I trust you and I love you and I'll keep trusting you. Please help me to keep trusting you. One of the songs we're going to sing after the sermon is The Lord's My Shepherd and the newer version of Psalm 23. And each and every time we sing it, I find it profoundly moving because I hear you sing those words you sing them to our father in heaven you sing and though i walk the darkest path i will not fear the evil one for you are with me and your rod and staff are the comfort i need to know and i will trust in you alone and i will trust in you alone for your endless mercy follows me your goodness will lead me home and it's moving because those aren't just words That's not an easy thing to sing, because it really costs. And for some of us, it it really, really costs. So three types of suffering, two responses. And as Paul writes to the Philippian church, we've seen it already, he's very much turning to God. He's turning to him and he's trusting him. I know from chatting over the weeks that that's been the striking thing for many in these um, verses so far. It's the reality of Paul's joy in the midst of the mess, something that Blythe was praying for us as a church family, that we would know this joy. We would know what Jesus is doing. Do you remember we talked about it? It's as if, do you remember Andy doing the kids' slot? We put the joy spectacles on. We see life in, in light of what Christ has done on the cross, which, which cannot change, and in what he, he is doing in his people and in the world. And that's why he can get to a place like 1 verse 21, which is an extraordinary verse. For Paul, he says, life is fundamentally about Jesus. He says it's really all about him. Let me just read it to us. I'll pick it up from the end of verse 20. Paul writes that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And and you see, if like Paul, 
if your life is really all about Jesus, if Christ is everything, then in death, well, in death you get more of Jesus. And that's brilliant. And so Paul is torn between the two. Verse 22, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Isn't that amazing? Death is better for Paul. Because Jesus gets you through death. And through death you get more of Jesus. And that changes your whole perspective on everything. That is extraordinary. There's the um, the often told story of the Bishop of Constantinople from a long time ago, a church father called John Chrysostom, who was summoned by the Emperor Arcadius, and he was threatened with banishment for his faith. Some of you will know this already. And he responds to the emperor. He says, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's kingdom. And I will take away your life, says the emperor. You cannot, answers the bishop, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I will take away your treasure, roared the emperor. You can't, replied Chrysostom, for my treasure is in heaven where my heart is. Then I will drive you from all of your friends. You cannot. For I have one friend from whom you can never separate me. You see, when you have Jesus, and finally, the Christian cannot be harmed. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death is not an issue. And as I say that, I'm aware that if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, then that just sounds nuts, doesn't it? Because when, if we boil it right down, life comes down to it, it's, it's about pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain, and that's really it. We, we live for the weekends, we live for holidays, we live for retirement, and death is to be feared, and death is to be fought against, rallied against. Death is an issue. Or else you get a bit twitchy and think, well, it sounds a bit like either martyrdom or mental illness. Or just taking it all a little bit too seriously. Is this really what Christians believe? But what if Jesus was really that good? What if he was that incredible, that extraordinary? Because for poor life is about Jesus because there was an empty tomb. Because the resurrection is true, because Christ is risen and ascended, and and because he is why heaven will be so amazing. And death is not to be feared or, or, or fought against or, or rallied against, because it just means more of Christ. And Jesus is brilliant. But for Paul now, for Paul now, he says, well, death will have to wait. It's better for me to be alive and remaining in the body because there's stuff for me to do. There's stuff for me to help you with, Philippians. But we're afraid of death, aren't we? We struggle to think death is really gain. 
Many of you will have heard of Don Carson. He's a Canadian pastor, a theologian. Um, Some of us will be familiar with books and commentaries that he's written. Um, He tells a story in one of his books of how he prayed for a woman called June Fordham. She had grown up in some very difficult circumstances. She had Life had gone off the rails, and she came to faith in Christ later on in life, and, and she becomes a nurse. And sadly, within just a few years, she, she finds she has an inoperable cancer. And she asks uh, Mr. Carson to come and pray for her with another minister. And he writes this, he says, She wrote to me from her hospital bed full of bitterness, fear, self-pity, anger. What then should we pray, he asks. Should we pray, Lord, bless her? Sometimes that's the only prayer that we can honestly pray. We, we don't know enough to pray any more than that. Or should we pray, Lord, take her home to be with you? Or, or, or Lord, heal her? We had no doubts the Lord could heal her. We just weren't convinced that he was going to. So we prayed for wisdom. And we turned to scripture. We remembered the many promises God has for his people, that he would keep his people. And we prayed that he would honor his word in her case. They visited her on a Monday night. On Thursday, he says, he received a letter from her written on Tuesday, the day after they visited. And she writes that she had awakened with joy. She had found herself singing hymns, that she had come to find deep rest in the Lord's perfect will. And that she was looking forward to going to be with him, if that was what he wanted. He says her letter was full of deep love for and faith in the Lord Jesus, and she died just a few weeks later. But not before she had exercised a remarkable influence in the hospital. Do you see, she had seen that death was gain, because you get more of Christ. But life for Paul now is about the work of Christ. It's what he has done on the cross, what he is doing in his people, what he is doing in the world. And actually you get it at either end of the passage. Have a look down with me. You get it first of all in verse 12, that little bookends. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That advance word there, and it's a very similar word to what you get in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Do you see, Paul is just the footnote. It's a story about Jesus. And so what matters is his gospel being advanced, verse 12. And what matters is his people progressing, verse 25. Which means for Paul, it's, it's a life not about personal comfort. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean as Christians we, we float above the hardships. We, we don't feel it. There are large swathes of the Christian church that essentially will sound like self-help counselors and teachers and gurus and Talk about living your best life now and where God in worldly terms wants you to be very successful and live an abundant life in all its fullness and, and to be victorious. And, and as with most false teaching, that there are truths in that, but nuances, emphases, definitions being ignored, being downplayed. For Paul, it's not about personal comforts. 
which is a real cost for him because he suffers. Do you see he's in prison and he repeats it for us three times in our verses. He says it in verse 13, that I'm in chains for Christ. Verse 14, and because of my chains. And verse 17, while I am in chains. For Paul, it's not about personal comfort, so for Paul it means prison. Where is he in chains? Truth be told, we don't exactly know for sure. Some scholars think Ephesus, some think Caesarea. I think what is most likely is some kind of extended house arrest in Rome. You can read it in Acts 28, he was there for two years. And I think that makes the most sense because... The house arrest means he's in chains with guards who hear the gospel. But it means as well he's got these people coming and going, these stack of friends. We'll hear about them in chapter 2, Epaphroditus, Timothy, coming and going. He's not isolated. So a house arrest seems the most sensible decision. And maybe it's why he will make reference at the end of the letter to people from Caesar's household who will send their greetings. I think Rome is most sensible. But wherever he is, It's comfort second, and it's Jesus first. And we hear that and we think, is that really a wise way to live? Don't you have niggly doubts? You think, if I really pour myself out like that, if I put comfort second, if I put Jesus first, I'm just not sure I'm going to have joy, really. When I be robbed of my joy isn't that it but what about this maybe maybe the reason we lack joy is that we keep putting ourselves first if our joy is in Christ in what he has done in what he is doing then then maybe going without for him maybe that makes us more joyful thing is, for most of us, and I speak to myself as well, we're, we're caught between two worlds. We're, we're riding two bicycles. We're sat on two fences. We're pulled in two directions. In lots of ways, we're in the world, but we're, we're of the world as well. And when it comes down to it, it's, it's comfort first and Jesus second. I think it's very challenging. These verses are hard verses. Just some examples. Think of the way most of us give financially. If we give, and I think as followers of Christ, we need to give, then don't we often give from what's left over after we've got all the stuff that we want because, well, because comfort comes first. And it's, it's surplus giving. It's not sacrificial giving. Or maybe how most of us serve. We, we serve in the time that's left over. Or maybe only in ways that we quite enjoy and will be noticed. And after we've done the stuff that we want to do, because it's comfort first. It's hard. We want to be in control. We're scared to give our all. We think if we give him the reins, if, if we put Jesus first, if it's not about personal comfort, and if it's about him, then where are we going to end up? What will he have us doing? Can we trust him? And so we constantly hold back. But Paul's, Paul's perspective in prison is extraordinary. 
Notice that God is at work even though Paul's life is not great. Paul is not waiting for things to get sorted before he thinks God will start using him. He he sees that being in chains is good news. And it's good news because the gospel's advancing, verse 12. Inside the prison walls, through Paul, there's a whole new group of people for him to speak to. They have to be there. They haven't got a choice. Verse 13, it's, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, I'm in chains for Christ. You can imagine them drawing lots, trying not to get Paul, please. The gospel's ringing out inside prison, but more than that, it's ringing out outside prison as well. You see that, verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Christians have been encouraged and emboldened by what he's done. They see his example, they step up to the plate, and they open their mouths and speak of Jesus. Isn't it great when that happens? Maybe you know something of that. You you think of that Christian in your office or on your course or in your family or in your halls. They stick their neck out for Christ. They speak out. They invite a neighbor to something or a roommate or Christianity explored, real life, whatever it might be. But you're thinking, well, if they can do it, why did it take me so long to even consider it? They've been brave and spoken up. Maybe, maybe I can be brave. Maybe I can speak up. The example of others spurs us on. And so inside and outside the prison walls, the message of Christ is ringing out, the gospel is advancing. Because for Paul, it's not about personal comfort. But then it's more than that as well. Second, you see, it's not about personal reputation. Now, it's a slightly weird situation. The other thing that seems to have happened is that Paul's imprisonment has actually encouraged some of his opponents. So you see it in verse 15. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Verse 17, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely while I'm in chains, supposing they can stir up trouble for me. That They're jealous of his influence and his ministry. They're kicking him when he's down. It's slightly weird. Who are they? Again, we don't completely know for sure. We know they're preaching the gospel. They're not the Judaizers we heard about in week one from chapter three. Do you remember them? Uh, Three verse two, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. More of them in weeks to come. But it's a reference, it seems, in chapter three to those who would follow behind Paul as he spoke the gospel to the Gentile and then they would hang on to his coattails and add stuff and undo the gospel message by saying... You had to keep various aspects of the Jewish law, circumcision, for example. They were people, it seems, who didn't trust in Christ, but in their their bloodline, their ethnicity, their law-keeping, their background. They had those as badges of honour. Remember, Paul says, I have Christ. Everything else is rubbish. But it's not them. I don't think it's them, because he's happy for these guys in chapter 1 to keep preaching. I think the best answer I've come across is this. And if it's right, Paul is preaching from Rome, in prison in Rome, which seems the most likely, then when he wrote to the church in Rome in the big letter Romans, 
you might remember there that he addresses some internal struggles within the church. There are uh, different groups, particularly Jewish and Gentile groups, and there's, there are factions and cliques, and they're not treating each other well. They seem to be all followers of Jesus, but they're divided. And so some think, well, maybe Paul's letter to the Romans wasn't quite successful. Maybe it's these perhaps Jewish background Christians who aren't saying Gentiles have to return to the Jewish law. It's a primary issue like in chapter 3, but maybe there's an overemphasis on, on food or those kinds of things, secondary issues. Paul had written to them in Romans 14, 17 and said, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And maybe they took offense at that. Maybe the faction grew. Maybe they divided more. And so with news then that Paul is in town and in chains, whoever it might be, in some perverse way, they are emboldened and encouraged and stirred up to share the gospel more Verse 17, out of selfish ambition. We don't know for sure. We do know Paul's response, which is it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Verse 18, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. When it comes down to it, he doesn't really care. I don't think it's as if he's bulletproof. He seems to be affected. He's he's considering how to respond. But in the end, he says, I'm not interested in my reputation, in my kingdom, in my empires. I don't care about motives. We're on the same team because Jesus is preached. Because to live is Christ. Which is a striking comment. Because in, in, in this world, as in their world, we know the importance of reputation. And we care what others think. And we know what it means to fear man. And we compare ourselves with others. And we, we compete with others even. But for Paul, it's just about Jesus. It's not about him. It's not about personal reputation. I think that's often why we end up keeping our mouths shut when we should speak for him. Because we care what others think of us. Because in reality, it's not just about him, it's about us too. It's a timely word for us as a church. Remember, for Paul, it only matters that the message of Jesus is going out. He doesn't care in terms of groups that people are a part of. And and at this time of year, in cities like Oxford, we have lots of people on the perpetual church search. Welcome, if that's you. Love having you with us. But I'll tell you from experience, and I'll tell you from other pastors' experience too, it's so easy to become about attracting people and hoping they'll stay with us and, and reputation and caring what they think. And almost seeing other churches, almost seeing other churches as competitors. Paul says it's just about Jesus. Don't care who preaches the gospel, we just want the gospel to go out. After the sermon, we're going to be praying for other churches around Oxford that they would be fruitful, that the Lord would bless them. Pray that we would care, that I would care less about what people think of us and more about what they think of Christ. That we wouldn't want to build our own little kingdoms, but that we would be generous 
and want Jesus to be proclaimed. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Of course, though, the thorn for each of us at the heart of this passage is how we finish that sentence in verse 21. For me to live is, is what? How do you finish that sentence? For me to live is fame, is adulation, is success, is popularity, is likes, is follows. For me to live is many close, committed, warm, meaningful friendships. People I can trust. People who I know accept me. For me to live is a spouse. A different spouse. A happy family. Tons of grandchildren. Kids who don't leave me lying awake at night because I worry about them. For me to live is a thriving church. To live is growing Christians. For me to live is is to reach the top of the ladder at work. The very top. For me to live is to make enough money to be comfortable. For me to live is health. How do you finish the sentence? Better still, if we could peer into your heart and project it on the screen, what would we decide is your answer to that sentence? That's a bit scary, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, please don't build on anything else. Don't find your joy in anything else. Nothing will really satisfy you. Nothing will last through death. Nothing else is worth it. Death will make a mockery of anything that we live for, except for Christ, who has conquered death. And I think here's our problem. We think Jesus is pretty good. He's pretty good, isn't he? But Paul thinks he is immense. He is awesome. He is extraordinary, incredible, glorious, beautiful, amazing. And in our our minds and our hearts, he's just little and too small. He's just pretty good. For Paul, he says, to live is Christ. He says, do you want to know the kind of joy that I have? Then don't worry so much about comfort and reputation and those kinds of things. Then daily die to self, daily put Jesus first, fix your eyes on him as the one who can give you joy, as the one who can satisfy. And then you will know joy. Because to live is Christ. He's not just pretty good. He's immense. He's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you how easily We finish that sentence in verse 21 with the wrong things. That we find life in things other than Jesus. That our life is not just about Jesus. And so we long, 
that you would captivate us afresh and you would captivate us daily with him. We long that we would put personal comfort second because we put Jesus first. We long that you would help us to put our reputation personally or corporately second because we put Jesus first. And we long that the gospel would advance and that your people would progress. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters meeting around Oxford today and we long that you would cause them and their churches to be fruitful. Would you bless them as they preach the message of Jesus? Would you grow those churches? Would you cause them to thrive and to flourish? And would we rejoice as you do that? Guard us, please, from empires and kingdoms and putting ourselves first. Help us, please, daily to offer our all to you and to trust you when life is hard and to know that Jesus is enough. In his precious name we pray. Amen.